Welcome to Life and Leadership. I believe in creating community, connections, and creating space to be curious. This podcast aims to take you on a conscious journey through quality, diverse, innovative content and conversation. My hope is that we create a circle of influence, a transcendency of compassionate leadership in the world and wider universe. Welcome to my podcast, Life and Leadership, A Conscious Journey. This is a weekly podcast for global leadership and re-emerging leadership, a unique destination for conversation around less discussed topics, learning about leadership, conscious stewardship, and legacy. My name is Michelle St. Jane, and I am your host. I have a vision to create a circle of influence, transcendency leadership for the world in outer space. My Why centers on creating an innovative podcast with content that channels knowledge, experience, and wisdom into creating quality, visionary leadership at its zenith. So here's the who of this episode. Ralph Richardson, man of the sea, has gone from chief pilot of the submarine enterprise to authoring Bermuda Boater, and a new course is coming online. There'll be more information about that. Ralph has been the Commodore of the Royal Yacht Club, and he's also contributed to the success of the America's Cup in Bermuda in 2015. Ralph is also a conscious steward of education. He's turned his textbook, The Bermuda Boater, into navigational courses. And as I said, it's going to be coming online at the end of the year. Ralph's what is around science, education, and technology. At the turn of the century, Ralph became the executive director of the Marine Science Museum, Bermuda Underwater Exploration Institute. And onwards, he went to become an executive director of a foundation, and he's going to share his amazing story. Ralph, I'm going to hand over to you because there's so much we can share, and your story is so inspirational. Okay. Where would you like me to start? (laughs) Uh, Perhaps at the beginning or the highlights. What are you most inspired by, Ralph? Well, I, I think what inspires me most is about relationships. I think, um, and I've, I've been doing some writing myself on a bio, and one of the things that uh, that I see continuous throughout my entire life is the inspiration that uh, I got from other people and the opportunity that many people gave me that I felt I didn't deserve. I had wonderful opportunities, many experiences. So my, my life started at the Bermuda Technical Institute. I'll start it there. I transferred from an academic school, the Barclay Institute, to a technical school, the Bermuda Technical Institute, which was a technical high school. And just to shorten it, the first time in my entire life I received a first place in anything was the motor vehicle technology exam done through uh, the uh, City and Guilds of London. It was an international uh, certification, and uh, I finished my first year with the distinction and continued ever since. I learned that physics had a practical uh, application in uh, in technical in, in motor vehicle technology, I did physics in in an academic school, and I couldn't understand why I had to study Boyle's law and Charles' law and Ohm's law, things that I would never use. But I found they were very important at a technical school, and I understood them fully. And applied uh, technology is what uh, changed my life. Uh, so I became uh, eventually after five years, I became uh, a, a, not just a certified uh, technician, but I had advanced uh, diesel engine certification. And um, I would uh, leave the the technical side and go into the fire service as a fireman. Uh, within a year, I was transferred to the engineering division, uh, where we not only repaired uh, our vehicles, but we actually designed and built vehicles right there. We actually assembled them there at the station. 
so that was a, a that was a very interesting career as a young man uh, at uh, 21 years old. The fire service was interesting and exciting. But instead of polishing brass and sweeping floors for most of the day, I spent time in the engineering division, which was was both uh, both uh, encouraging and and, and uh, very, very interesting. Uh, always had something different to do. But along with that, I was still a fireman and worked my way up in the ranks and um, eventually became a lieutenant in the Bermuda Fire Service. And at one point, I was uh, second in command of the volunteer brigade. Uh, then we had volunteers and uh, I was the senior training officer. For, so that was my first bit of leadership uh, as a lieutenant in the Bermuda Fire Service at the age of, uh, I'm just trying to think, at 28, uh, I was a lieutenant and um, stayed on for a volunteer for many years. And so that was a little bit of my, in that area, but my, um, my chief engineer in the in the workshop uh, was an avid reader, and he loved to read about marine, uh, especially marine books, and he would share them with me. And uh, I read one book that I say changed my life. Folly Mowat's book, The Gray Seas Under, was an incredible book about uh, the Foundation Franklin out of um, North Halifax, and interesting true stories about the sea. And uh, from there, I I just could not feel fulfilled until I did an ocean trip. And that came quite by accident. And, well, I don't believe in accident. I believe in Providence that uh, I did get that opportunity. In 1981, I met Cecilia Unger. She had been the first female owner of the world's most famous super yacht at the time. It was a Great Britain too. It had won the first two Whitbread round the world races and she purchased it and wanted to be the first woman to win the round the world race in the Great Britain to a 78-foot uh, maxi sailboat. I went to her and asked. I knew that she had had a problem in that uh, the boat had been left here in a hurricane in October of 1980, and she had to leave it here uh, because her crew, her French crew, threatened to take her life if she did not uh, come to Bermuda. They were afraid of the hurricane, and she came here, and she fired the 20 French crew, and she was going to attempt in uh, February of that year to sail this large yacht to England with her ex-husband and a young Belgian friend of his. Not knowing what I was getting into, I went to and asked if I could join her. At the time, I had a local captain's license. I had uh, turned to the sea. We lived on Daryl's Island at the time, and uh, but I had no ocean, uh, no ocean experience. So I went to see her. She said, have you done ocean and have you sailed before? I said, not really, not really. Those, those are my, my answers to her quest, two questions. Uh, the next day I went back and I said, have you run the boat? She said, no, I've, I've got the, the batteries charging. So I picked them up in the car. I drove them back to the boat. I took them down and I said, you've got a few problems here. Uh, one, that your, your charging system isn't working and so on and so on. And I said, but guess what? I'll do it free of charge. And for the next 10 days, I went down and I got everything working. And her ex-husband said, you have to come. I hate the engine room. And um, I was going to go off to England. She said, I cannot afford to pay your way back. I sold my house to buy this boat. I, she, she just didn't have a lot of money. So uh, I offered to crew, but she could not send me back and I was going to not go. One day as I was finishing up, she said, listen, we've uh, been talking to the Bermuda government. The reason she had to rush out is that she would have to pay the import duty after six months, which is required in Bermuda. And so she had to move the boat. She said, we've gotten permission from the Bermuda government to sail to another port and back. And once we get back, time is unlimited. We can stay longer. But she had arranged for some off-duty Royal Navy uh, sailors uh, to sail her boat back in April of that year. 
So I was invited to go on what was to be the most exciting to this very day, the most exciting portion of my life. I got to sail on the Great Britain to the world's fastest yacht. Uh, it had the elapsed time record of 140 days around the world. It was an amazing opportunity. And I went as uh, initially as engineer. My job was to make sure the, the, the engines and all the machinery work well. And I went down and of course, the time I spent at the engine room was about four hours a day. The rest of the time I was sailing, I was learning to sail the boat. We sailed here in a tremendous storm. Uh, in fact, there were 18 to 20 foot seas just after a major winter gale and, uh, in March 6th of that year. And we sailed all the way to the Virgin Islands. We were there in six days and uh, we spent a, another uh, week sailing around the Virgins. I'd never been to the Caribbean. I remember we pulled into Jos van Dijk, a tiny island with 200 residents, about a third the size of Bermuda. I didn't realize there was that much available land after only having seen Bermuda as an island. And uh, so we, we actually just had a vacation of it. We sailed back into a treacherous uh, Atlantic storm, 25-foot seas, just the type of thing I wanted to experience after reading Polly Mowat's book. And uh, I wasn't afraid at all. Um, there was no seasickness at the time. Uh, we actually had a, had a couple of major incidents on the boat, which she helped to take care of. She never let anyone risk their lives. She would be there first. And I was very uh, admired. Her name was Cecilia Unger, and uh, a tremendous young woman, uh, 34 years old, and owning and captaining her own ship. Uh, there, there turned out to be six, seven of us as crew. She was able to put together a little crew from Bermuda. Uh, they, they were all foreigners, uh, Jim Ferris and his son, uh, a young, the young Belgian friend, her ex-husband, myself, and a Dutch guy who decided to underwrite the trip. He paid for the fuel and everything. He said, I'm going to give you this money, but I have to go. He'd never been to sea before. He turned out to be a liability on the way down and that he couldn't be left alone to do anything. He would make mistakes. But by the time he came back, I always say it. I, I, I kept a diary on that trip. It was almost as if a light bulb had gone off over his head. He'd finally figured out how to steer the boat. He was, he'd so, he was so good at it that we would leave him alone and, and relax. He was so excited about it. But we sailed back to Bermuda. We got back to Bermuda. And uh, I would see the boat one more time uh, when it came to Bermuda uh, under new ownership. And, uh, and the, that captain invited me to help him to navigate from St. George to Hamilton. And that's the last time I saw the GB2. But that changed my life. From then on, I'll just move on to say that since then, I have had 20,000 miles of open sea ocean experience. I've participated in oh, probably 10 ocean races from the United States to Bermuda. Annapolis to Bermuda, Marion to Bermuda, and the Newport to Bermuda. I competed in those races as navigator. Uh, I learned to do celestial navigation in, um, in the, the school season of 1982 and 1983 with uh, Captain Ian Clark at the Bermuda College, what is now the Bermuda College. And uh, after completing a navigation uh, course in celestial navigation using the stars and the sun, I competed in the, the Marion race in 1983. We actually won the Hinkley Trophy in 1987. We were the first boat um, in Class A, the largest boats out of 147 yachts. We were third across the line, and we won on elapsed time. We won Class A, and I won the Navigator's Trophy in 1987. In 1983, I won the Navigator's Trophy again, and they, they gave you that trophy. They had a Navigator's Trophy because we were using Celestial. We, were, we weren't using all the fancy electronics, except at the very beginning and at the very end. 
you could put on the electronics just to help to navigate through the reefs. But for the rest of the race, 630 nautical miles, uh, you were using the stars and the sun. And so, uh, and I've competed now. I actually did that race again in 1971. We won Class A again, and we missed the record by 45 minutes with Captain Robbie Mulderick, with Kirk Cooper, who actually held the record. He was the tactician on board, and he was trying to beat his own record. We missed it by 45 minutes. We were here in, in 72 hours uh, after leaving um, Newport. So it was nearly the fastest. And uh, so that was all this happened. Now, sailing with all these guys, they were members of a yacht club. I'd never been a member of the yacht club. Uh, but after the race in 19, uh, I'm trying to think which one it was, but uh, close to the end of the last decade, uh, last century, I was invited to join the Bermuda Yacht Club in, in, in 1999 and in 2000. January 1, I became Commodore. And after the launch of my, the second edition of my book, I was invited to join the executive. And then they asked me if I'd join the flag officer track. That's a rare Commodore. And in 1998, uh, in 2008, I'm sorry, I became the first non-white Commodore of the Royal Bermuda Yacht Club. And I served the two years. I had a very successful two years as Commodore of the club, which everyone does, two years. And uh, so that's a little bit of my nautical history. I've taught navigation at the War Community School for more than 20 years. And uh, for four years, I taught Royal Yachting Association courses uh, at the Bermuda College. So that's my nautical history in a nutshell, except that, um, that in 19, I was teaching, nav I started teaching navigation, uh, that's coastal navigation, at the War Community School just after one of my races. That would have been around 19... Uh, 89 or so. And in 1992, I published the first edition of the Bermuda Boater in 92. 2004, uh, the second edition, and I was still teaching navigation. And then uh, after 25 years, I gave up teaching navigation. Until now, we'll talk about that later. But that's a little bit of uh, my boating history. And from a point of view of leadership, as I mentioned, my first leadership role was as a fireman, as a, as, a, as a junior officer at first, a leading fireman, then a sergeant. And then in the volunteer division, I became a lieutenant and, um, like I said, second in charge of the volunteers. And from then on, I, my next, I guess, real leadership role uh, came at, as I decided to get into insurance. Well, for, the next leadership role was a submarine. I was invited to um, to take on the role as chief operations officer of the a tourist submarine, the, the Enterprise. It was a 44-passenger submarine that could carry 44 passengers down to 200 feet. With no submarine experience, I went off to the Virgin Islands for three months to, to look at another submarine, uh, get into operation. And uh, I worked with them for three months, and I came back, and I felt I understood enough to get started. I ended up having to write the uh, operations manual for the submarine enterprise in Bermuda. And we started carrying passengers in 1986, and I left in 1994. Uh, it actually continued one more year after I left and, and discontinued. But during that year, I got into the insurance industry at Bermuda's largest uh, insurer, Bermuda Fire and Marine, which became BF&M. And I was uh, in claims because that's something I knew about. Didn't know much about insurance, but I certainly knew about boats, about cars, and about some construction in Bermuda. So I was a loss adjuster for that company for two years. And then they moved me to underwriting. And after two years of that, they asked me to apply for a manager's job. And I didn't think I was able. I was studying insurance with the ACII and um, 
I managed to pass my first two exams. And uh, so I was really into insurance. I managed the uh, personal lines uh, for BFNM for two years. And then I was offered an executive director's job at a science museum. And then after two years, I was offered a, an executive director's job uh, with uh, the ACE, an international insurance company. I, they, I became their uh, executive director of their, their foundation, the second largest uh, uh, corporate foundation in Bermuda. did that for 10 years before semi-retirement. And it was a master's degree that caused me to quit my job. I started a, uh, thanks to Michelle St. Jane, who encouraged me to continue my studies. I started a master's degree with the University of Liverpool. And after one year, I discovered, I determined that I could not finish it and work. So I took an early retirement, took two years to study and start start our own business. And um, so that's a little bit of of where we are now. Uh, We have have a consulting business, a tour company, and we do a little vacation rental. So we that's what we do in our retirement. So uh, I feel retired because everything I do now, I'm enjoyed doing. I think uh, as Michelle, I, I think I've taken a page from her book that um, if you're going to enjoy life, you should enjoy what you do. And I think those who are doing what they're, they were hardwired, what they were created to do are happier than those who don't. Thank you, Ralph. I really enjoy how your story shows the pivot, the pivot of the turn of the century, where you moved out of technical into leadership and managing mm-hmm. people and mentoring people. And then the pivot happened again from looking, um, from what I know of you, but also looking like, then you went into the business development of a private cloud-based business. And, you know, yeah. again, it's bringing technology in. And then, of course, your love of people, you're back to people with winsome tours and consulting. You know, I just love it. But I have one question. With your University of Liverpool degree, you decided to do a Master's of Science and International Management. How did you make that choice? I mean, I see education, I see technology, I see your community spirit. Yeah. What drew you to that degree particularly? Uh, something did, and, and that was interesting. I, I did. The thing is, I had no degree, and I, 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 that was on my bucket list of things to do. So I said, as I looked at all the options, I, I didn't want to do an MBA it, because they seem to be dime a dozen. Everybody seems to have an MBA, but I wanted to do something that would uh, pique my interest. And uh, as a manager of BFNM, we were looking at a few concepts and I really like the soft skills of management. How do you encourage people? How do you motivate people? Uh, one of the things that impressed me at, at BFNM, they did a... Um, during the time I was there, we did an assessment of all the staff on the ground floor. And uh, we found that, that some people were, were not, they were square pegs in a round hole. And we wanted to see how can we put, make sure that every round hole has a round peg. And uh, we tested everyone for their communication styles and skills. And we ended up uh, dividing the customer service group into two. One group who loved to prepare uh, policies and, and, and do the support work. And the other group loved to talk to people. And we separated them with, with the people who didn't like people in the back sending out policies. And they were thrilled. That's what they wanted to do all day. And the people who love people, we put them out front. And I was really interested in some of the, uh, the, the management concepts that I was getting from Ghislaine LeMay, who was the consultant working there at the time. And so what, when I was looking for a degree, I wanted one that would help me to understand international cultures and that uh, about half the class were typical MBA courses, uh, accounting and, and uh, organization, all those types of things. But what really fascinated me was that I would be studying uh, 
global cultures, uh, what makes people tick, the differences between the extreme difference between collectivist societies like China and Asia and uh, individualist societies like uh, America and the Western communities. But how could you manage with groups from all those different cultures? How could you manage with people from India who seem to have a holiday every other week and, and, and all of the, some of the challenges of managing? Something interesting, as I discovered as I studied, that most American managers that go abroad do not end up doing their first, completing their first term because of the inability to accept uh, the various cultures. And so for me, learning the cultures and these differences would mean uh, Actually, it didn't mean I wanted to manage again. I was getting close to the end of my career. But the excitement of learning about that is what I enjoyed. For me, it wasn't about the destination. It was really more about the journey, my education. And I, I don't have my certificate hanging on a wall. Actually, my wife wants to hang it in my house. So it was not meant to show people how I did in school. It simply was, uh, it was about the journey. So that's what excited me, learning about people. Wow, yeah. And you are all about people. Yeah. Thank you, Ralph. I'm going to say thank you and pause here. Any other words that you want to share just before we stop? I was asked by the Bermuda College, uh, I was asked to be a keynote speaker to the graduation of the PACE group one year. And uh, the professor called me at home and she says, if you had a, a, a personal statement, what would it be? And I thought about it and uh, I, I can't remember it verbatim, but I can tell you what uh, it meant. It meant that um, money, education, the ability to do something well, and it pulls in, in comparison to the ability to make and sustain meaningful relationships. That's what my statement would be. Yeah, that is just so you, Ralph. Thank you very much. As a steward of meaningful leadership in the world and wider cosmos, I have a passion for service through sharing wisdom, strength, and hope. Thank you for the opportunity to foster open conversation, discussions, and an exchange of ideas that create understanding and connection among diverse groups. Your support is valued. Please subscribe, leave a review, and a rating. More importantly, share with your connections. Thank you.